Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Radio Free Mormon, how are you this fine night? I am great, Bill. Here where I always want to be Wednesday evenings with you, my friend. 6.20 p.m. There's something really cool about ready to happen here in November. Have you heard? Um, I think I've heard something about it. Do tell. So it is uh, Thrive 2021. This is happening on November 14th at the Salt Palace, Salt Lake City, Utah. It's an all-day event. I believe that's on a Sunday. Yep, Sunday, November 14th. And let me see here if I recognize any of these people. We've got uh, Sarah Edmondson, the actor. Uh, she also does a podcast, by the way. Uh, Lance Allred, former NBA player. He played for the Cleveland Cavaliers alongside LeBron James. And uh, I'm a huge Cavs fan, being from Ohio. Uh, whoa, wait a minute. Hold on. Look at that. Number three there. Radio Free Mormon. Uh, Mormonism Live podcast. Why am I number three? I specifically asked for number one. You should have been number one. Uh, <laughs> look right below you. It's Alan and Katie Mount, Marriage on a Tightrope. As long as Alan's uh, below me, I can't complain too much. They're they're a huge part of what we do here. Um, Mar uh, Mary and Shelly, the Latter-day Lesbian podcast, Monica Crowfoot uh, on TikTok. Uh, down there a little bit. Look at the very bottom. Look who's rounding out the group there at the very bottom. Uh, kind of just... Uh, Cleaning up, I guess that's batting cleanup maybe in this group of, of nine. I'm the last guy in the batting order. That means you're the heavy hitter. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Bill Real Mormon Discussions podcast. This should be a lot of fun. We are, uh, those are going to be at least some of the people, if not all of them, that will be speaking. And uh, they said that you and I would get a chance to have a booth too and uh, kind of be able to greet uh, our followers and listeners and viewers and have a chance to kind of uh, connect with those folks. So if you're thinking about it, uh, you should sign up for Thrive. Uh, I assume that if you go there to that website, thrivebeyondreligion.com, and you can sign up there. And I don't think it was that expensive. I think it was 25 bucks a person or something. Really? Well, I know that you and I both are slotted at some point during the day to speak as well as Manabooth. Yeah, we'll speak. Um, you've got 14 minutes and 58 seconds, I think, allotted to you. And I've got and 15 minutes and, and two seconds. seconds. Yeah. That's 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 the way it's going to work. <laughs> I wouldn't sign the contract unless it worked that way. I understand. Excuse <laughs> me. All right. So, folks, we are super appreciative of those of you who are tuned in and watching us or possibly listening sometime after tonight's show when it gets released as an audio podcast only. Uh, there's 173 people in here. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, it is. If you'll hit the like button or the follow like, like, button like. or the subscribe button, and even better, you suggested this last time, RFM, if you would share the podcast, uh, this this episode of Mormonism Live on your Facebook page uh, or some other place in social media, that's how we get our voices out there to be heard and to see if people like the kind of things that we're talking about. And to be honest, it's all part of helping you uh, 
and all of us who are kind of deconstructing Mormonism to share that deconstruction of others as we kind of process what Mormonism is and isn't and all the beauty uh, of history it has in 200 years. RFM, you are in charge of tonight's episode. I had a lot of fun putting some of these images together for you. Uh, take it away, my friend. I am in charge. You can call me Alexander Haig. That, <laughs> yeah. that joke never grows old. Not in 40 years. It doesn't grow old. But anyway, yeah, the, the title of tonight's episode is Modern Day Mormon Danites. And most people who are members of the church and some who are not have at least heard of the phrase Danites and understand that it's sort of a, a body of people that may do violence to you if you don't agree with them. But the Danites actually show up in Mormon history back in 1838 when there was a big conflict going on between the Mormons and the citizens of Missouri. Apparently, they weren't getting along too well at that time. It ended up in what's sometimes called the, the Missouri War, in fact. But that's back when you had modern-day Mormon Danites. They used to kill you. Now they just make you vanish without a trace. There's a little less physical violence and just about as much emotional violence. There's a lot of stuff going on, and we're going to talk about some of that tonight. First off, it's really interesting, too, that when I was doing a little bit of background research on the Danites, by which I mean uh, pulling up the Wikipedia article on the subject. <laughs> oh, the Danites, uh, they're organized in this uh, situation in Missouri where there's all this hostility going on. But, and this is important, actually. That was not their initial purpose, was to fight against the non-Mormon Missourians. They were actually organized in the first place to militate against the dissenters within the LDS church. And you can find that on Wikipedia. It says they began as a group of zealots determined to drive out internal dissension among the Mormons. Dissenters, which included former high-ranking Mormons, including, oh, the three witnesses. Isn't that interesting, Bill? Did you ever learn about that in Sunday school class? The three witnesses were some of the original members of the Danites? No, they're three of the people that the Danites expelled from Missouri. Oh, so they're, they're some of the people on the other end of the stick of the emotional and physical violence. Right, because they were dissenting a bit from what was going on at yeah. that time for different bases. And by the way, when I say kicking them out of Missouri, I don't necessarily mean that out of Missouri proper, just out of the Mormon settlements. Yeah, they are out it, of here. Wasn't William Marks another one? Stake president of Nauvoo. Didn't the Danites, a.k.a. the Whistling Whittlers, uh, also move him along? Well, that was the Whistling and Whittling Brigade, not to be confused with the Danites. See? I think there's some crossover. Uh, it seems like they have a similar job description. Yeah, and I think there were similar people. <laughs> and there might have been similar people, people too. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But then they progressed to become involved in militia and paramilitary conflicts with U.S. forces in both U.S. forces? I wonder if that's correct here in the Wikipedia article. I doubt if there was a lot of U.S. forces, probably just a lot of Missouri militia groups. So anyway, you can't always trust Wikipedia. I think that there were no U.S. forces involved. So, but um, but they continue. They continue today, and we're going to talk about that. I was talking with somebody about that just before the show, and they said, well, where are they today? And I say, well, I think you can find most of them in downtown Salt Lake. There's there, There's a big building. Down there, it's near the temple. It's pretty tall. You may have seen it. Anyway, um, let me see here. Oh, one thing I learned is that I was under a misconception up to this point when I read the Wikipedia article, assuming I can trust it on this point. But I had always thought that the Danites came from the 
the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right, is named Dan. They're the Danites. But no, apparently, apparently, it's actually from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel. Because according to Albert P. Rockwood, who was a loyal Mormon writing in October 1838 when the fighting was the thickest, right? He wrote, the companies are called Danites because the prophet Daniel has said that the saints shall take the kingdom and possess it forever. Makes sense to me. Mm. So there's the Danites, right? There's our background on the Danites. And what happens with um, the Danites today, as I say, it's not uh, so um, overtly. Uh, militant, overtly violent, if I can use that expression. Um, even though there was a recent talk by a, a noted LDS apostle about muskets that was given at BYU, I think he called those metaphorical mus muskets to distinguish them from the, the literal muskets that the Danites used to use. But there is cropping up in the LDS church, and we'll be talking about a few of these examples tonight, modern day examples of people being made to vanish without a trace. They're not killed. They're not assaulted, but they are disappeared. And I wanted to start off with your experience, Bill, because I know that you used to work for uh, Fair Mormon, volunteering, working for Fair Mormon a number of years ago. And I only know that from talking with you because actually, if I go to Fair Mormon, I can't find any trace of you on the website. <laughs> is that correct? It is correct. In fact, I'll put it up here on the on the screen. But on the left-hand side was the session that I was a part of. So in 2013, I am uh, kind of the head guy for their podcast. I'm the voice behind most of their episodes, and I'm the uh, I'm the production that's getting most of of the face of the of the FaceTime. So we ended up doing a session at uh, the Fair Mormon Conference that year, Salt Lake City. I went down and a person who was a supporter of Mormon Discussion Podcast because we had a lot of overlap of Fair Mormon's episodes with mine. Um, and uh, a listener from Mormon Discussion uh, kind of let me stay in his home. And I went down to the conference there and I thought it was cool. I was at the time deconstructing but wanting to make it work and wanting to be Mormon even if things didn't quite add up. And so I was the moderator and also a participant in the session. It was uh, Maxine Hanks. Uh, I'm going to mess up one of these names. It is uh, Don Bradley and uh, I think it's Janet Eyring uh, are the three people there to your left. Yeah, their and names are down I, here at the bottom right on your screen. Yeah, and well, they're, yeah, they're in both pictures because it's the same photo. And Fair Mormon had this picture on the left as the photo for this session until all of this went south. And then everything I did, all my podcast episodes were removed. All of the references to me on their site were removed, and they went so far as to take the images for this session where I was the moderator and also a participant on the panel, and they just cut me out of the picture, as you can see there. And so that's Mormonism, or uh, Fair Mormons, the loss and rekindling of faith session that I was a part of. They don't have my name in there or anything. And they they edited the transcript even to remove any um, any awareness of me being part of that session. And, and I just want to note, just one little note, 2013 is also the year that Fair Mormon won the pod, last time they won the podcast award, uh, which was a national um, uh, competition, essentially. In the category of religion? Category of religion. And they must Fair have been Mormon's, great back then. You're to be commended. You're probably yeah, the reason so they won that award, Bill. I still have the audio where they name my name uh, as, as their 
congratulating and thanking those who were part of that win. So uh, kind of a funny little thing in Mormon history. Well, look, you've got to tell us how it is they won the award. Oh, that's really easy. I thank you for asking. So uh, Fair Mormon has lots of volunteers. And while that um, voting is going on, it's not that listeners to the Fair cast are voting. I'm sure some are, but it's not a highly listened to podcast. And what they did was they would reach behind the scenes to all of us volunteers, and they would tell all of us how many times we could vote a day. So you can vote 15 times a day. Uh, before it doesn't let you vote anymore. And they would tell all of their volunteers to vote 15 times a day and encourage us to essentially be unethical if, at, at the root of what that would mean to skew the results. Because if you think about it, any other podcast out there has a team of three, four, five people. And there's no way that they could skew it near as much as a large entity like Fair Mormon. So we won the podcast award that year. Um, but if I can be honest, I think we were cheating. You were gaming the system. Yeah, we were cheating. By, by the direction of the leaders of Fair Mormon, that couldn't be true. Is that true? It, it could be true. That would be Scott Gordon, uh, John Lynch, and uh, Steve Densley at the time. Wow. By the way, I also wanted just to remark that we did an entire episode, I think it was on Radio Free Mormon, where I had you on to interview you about your whole experience with Fair, where people can go to if they want to hear the whole story. It's called Fair is Foul. I'm waiting for any Fair. kind of recognition there. I okay. Can, I, I can do a I can do a laugh or something. No, no, no. That's okay. That's okay. It's not a laugh. It's not a laugh. It's just a it's a Shakespeare baby. It's Macbeth. Okay. Fair is foul. Foul is fair. So that's where I got that title from. By the way, since you had the picture up there of where you were erased from the picture, and actually as I was looking at it, at first I thought they just erased you somehow, but no, they just cropped the photo so that you you're not seen. They just cut it just barely so that you can't even see you or the stand where you are. I had also looked at the video that they still have up at the Fair Mormon website of this panel. And they've cut you out and tried to re-edit it in such a way that it seems like uh, these people are responding to somebody else who's not asking questions because you're not there. And it's very, very, um, uh, it's obvious that somebody's missing. And that that yeah. somebody is the person who's asking the questions who just happens to be you. Since we have this picture up here, I think this would be a great time, if it's okay, to put up the, the picture of one of my heroes, Joseph Stalin. There he is. Okay, so this is not the first time that Fair Mormon has done something like this. So, <laughs> so um, isn't this great? Here's Joe. Here's Uncle Joe. I think you're confusing uh, fair Mormon and Mormonism with a different uh, socialist or communist regime. <laughs> you're right. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> they weren't even around then for crying out loud. This is maybe where they got the idea. By the way, little background information. The guy who's there, now you see him, now you don't. Um, that's a guy named Nikola Yeshov. And I'm probably mispronouncing that, but that's okay because he's disappeared. He was a secret police official who oversaw Stalin's purges. For a while, Yeshkov worked at Stalin's right hand. Looks like he's on his left hand there, but he worked at his, at his right hand, interrogating, falsely accusing, and ordering the execution of thousands of fair Mormon, no, of Communist Party officials. But in 1938, this poor fellow, this little fellow there, Yeshkov fell from Stalin's favor. By the way, it's Y-E-Z-H-O-V is how you spell it. 
Yeshov fell from Stalin's favor after being usurped by one of his own deputies. He was denounced, secretly arrested, tried in a secret court, and executed. And then afterward, apparently, all memory of him was erased, even from photographs. And that's what that photograph, those two photographs side by side, the before and the after, demonstrate. It's a very famous photograph. And you and I were talking, you and I were talking, there's, you know, this isn't the only person it happened to in that regime. It it happened over and over again. There's multiple photos online. You can Google them, but it tends to be a pattern of behavior among this regime. And as you're pointing out, maybe other people are doing similar kinds of things. Right. And fair Mormon is the first example. And now we get to go to, I wish it was just, you know, the communist Stalinists who were doing this, but apparently fair Mormon does it as well. And that's more recent and more close to home as far as I'm concerned. Then we have an incident that happened relatively recently with a professor named Ben Park. You may have heard of him, Bill. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I have heard of Ben. Not as much as some of the other names that we've tossed around, but I'm aware that he's a scholar. Uh, I'm aware that he's a smart guy. He's written some things and done some presentations and stuff that I think uh, address Mormonism and in very honest uh, ways, if that if that makes sense. He's read a few books. He, he went to a pretty good school. Benjamin Park. Uh, he's got degrees from Brigham Young University, the University of Edinburgh, and the University of Cambridge, for crying out loud. He spent two years as the inaugural postdoctoral fellow at the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy and is currently an assistant professor of American history at Sam Houston State University. His new book, which was new, I think, last year, maybe the year before, Kingdom of Nauvoo, which a lot of people have heard of and some have read. I haven't read it yet, and I apologize for that because it's a big deal. It was very, very well received. In fact, um, it won the Mormon History Association's Best Book Prize. Mm. So, yeah, this is a big deal. And the thing is that back in 2018, I think it was, he was doing sort of an internship, internship internship at the Maxwell Institute. And the Maxwell Institute is, of course, what farms used to be. But then farms got, farms used to be independent of the church. But then it got rolled into the Maxwell Institute. It got put on the BYU campus and it became subject to official church oversight, which some people thought was a great idea. Other people thought was a horrible, horrible idea. And I'm sure that the backyard professor is a live chatting right now because he was one of those who thought it was a horrible idea. Um, And well, I guess it just depends on your point of view as to whether it ended up being, but it's under the church. This guy's a big deal. He did some research while he was at BYU and it was a real feather in the cap of the Maxwell Institute to have a scholar of this magnitude associated with them. So he had a, a bio page up there on the Maxwell Institute He had given a presentation at one of the Maxwell Institute conferences, and that video was up there. And so there were a few things that were up there related to Benjamin Park. Now, let me see here. Let's go back to, let's go back to June of 2020, okay? It is currently September 29th, 2021, but let's go back to, uh, was it June Was it July? July of 2020. Because in July of 2020, over at The Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint thought, whose chief editor is 
Professor Daniel C. Peterson, who's recently retired from BYU, I believe. Actually, I'm pretty sure he has. But um, he's the editor. And he apparently tapped Susan Easton Black, who's another professor at BYU, to do a hit piece on, I mean, a book review of <laughs> Benjamin. What <laughs> did I say that or did I just think that? Uh, uh, Benjamin yeah. of his book, Kingdom of Nauvoo. So if you go to the interpreter, and I don't know if you're there now, but um, it's a very brief, yeah. it's a very brief review. And in fact, it only has two footnotes. That's how in-depth this is. But I wanted to quote a little bit about it because already rumblings of discontent about Benjamin Park's work were being heard in certain, shall we say, more orthodox quarters of the church. And I thought it was really interesting that Susan Easton Black, who's a smart lady, uh, writes, putting aside the cares of the day, I blocked out an afternoon and sat down to read. And I thought, wow, you must be like a speed reader. She must have gone to the Evelyn Wood uh, speed reading courses because an afternoon she's going to devote to reading this book. She does say later on she reread it, but there's not a whole lot of evidence that she really paid a whole lot of attention or took a lot of notes. She starts off nicely. I was delighted to find that Benjamin Park has a flair for writing. His words are accessible to scholar and lay reader alike, a rare talent indeed. But um, the brief review quickly shifts into a more negative tone because apparently she feels that the sine qua non of being a scholar and writing a scholarly work is testifying that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God when you write a book about Joseph Smith. Benjamin Park is a faithful Latter-day Saint. That's my understanding. Um, and then she goes on to say, right, the bottom line is that I came away from my first read of Kingdom of Nauvoo knowing the author missed the joy of Nauvoo's true history as he reached for sensational topics that sell in today's market, polygamy and the Council of 50. I asked myself, and here's the key point, I asked myself why this author with an academic background from Brigham Young University and a bright academic future aligned himself with scholarship that degrades a prophet of God. So she sees a secular book about the kingdom of Nauvoo and Joseph Smith's uh, activities in it, and I would assume other people as well, that that's degrading a prophet of God. She goes on to elaborate on this in her conclusion. No matter the talent of the author, oh, let me just skip down to the, the main part, truth. Truth edifies the writer and the reader. On which page should I have been edified in kingdom of Nauvoo? Where is the author's knowledge that Joseph Smith was a prophet and the Lord revealed his words to him? To take out faith, a belief that God speaks to his prophet and the sacrifice of thousands of early Latter-day Saints to build up Nauvoo and their reason why is to miss the mark. May this author present truth in his next work. <laughs> oh, wow. Anything less will not serve him or his readers well. So here we have Daniel C. Peterson tapping Susan East and Black, both professors at BYU, to write this very brief and uninsightful review of Benjamin Park's book and chastise him for not bearing witness of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling in the course of a secular history book written for secular audiences as well as LDS audiences. It's simply not there to be 
uh, a correlated piece of church curriculum. And she it, apparently finds fault with that. Go ahead. What, Bill? Yeah, no, no. It just seems strange to me. As you're pointing out, if you're going to write, if you're going to be a historian and you're going to write history, then it really is your job to stay out of what's inside Joseph Smith's head, whether he hears voices from on high and whether he's getting direction to do God's work. You, you can't really tap into that. So a historian will tend to stay away from that kind of thing. Yes. And now what happened then is that a few weeks ago, it was about a month ago now, I think that Elder Holland gave his intemperate musket talk mm, at yeah. BYU. And I trust everybody here knows what I'm referring to. Well, he gave that talk. And I think that very shortly thereafter, and it may have been even the same day, that Benjamin Park made a couple of tweets on his Twitter account. Do you have those, Bill? Yeah, so the Twitter account, let me go to the first one. And while you're doing that, I want to thank John DeLynn for sending those to us because I wasn't exactly sure where to find them. I knew that he had said something, but I wasn't sure what it was. But here we have it in his own words from August 23rd, 21. Can you read that, Bill? Yeah, Benjamin Park says, again, you said the date, 823-21. I don't know who needs to hear this, but when religiously oriented professors are expected to carry our muskets into modernity's culture wars. My support will always be given to the marginalized and oppressed and hardly ever to those who prioritize institutions. Yes. So Amen, I don't think that, way. yeah. And I don't think that needs a lot of uh, deciphering. No. Definitely coming down on the side that um, Elder Holland was speaking against and on the side that's sort of against Elder Holland without saying his name. He gets a little bit perhaps more pointed in another tweet yep here's the other here's the other two these this one the one on the left was on top of the one on the right but just so that i could make them bigger i uh i did it this way so uh this is the 823-21 still my sympathies with byu students who continue to search and find a way at a university where some administration are dedicated to hurting you man that's that's pointed but, yes. but amen to having the balls to do it uh, and then he says, in my respect to those BYU faculty who are still doing their very best to fix things, despite being undercut at every turn. I bet he's got some good stories to tell. I'll bet he does. And I'll bet he's a professional enough not to tell them. And then uh, and then somebody else, a Jacqueline said, anyways, if I were a prominent leader in a church with a growing right wing extremist problem, I would maybe not call for more musket fire. But the apostles are built different, I guess. And he says also this. These remarks are irresponsible, tone deaf, and indefensible. There's no doubt he is definitely coming at Elder Holland, although he's not naming him. You're left to make a little bit of a jump, but knowing the context of everything, there's no doubt he's talking to LDS leadership in the absurdity of their homophobia and how they're handling this at BYU. I agree. Well, it was not long after he made these tweets that people at the church apparently thought this shall not stand and we must do something about Benjamin Park and we must do it now. Hmm. What to do, what to do. Well, if you go back to this, <laughs> okay. What they did was they scrubbed him. They scrubbed him from the database. They disappeared him. the modern day Danites are at work. Once again, they don't kill you anymore. They just make you vanish without a trace. So they took down every trace, every vestige of his ever having been associated with the Maxwell Institute. And here's a great way to point it out, okay? Like I said, in this uh, brief book review 
from July of 2020. Susan Easton Black has as her second and final footnote, Park spoke about his book on February 28, 2020. And C, and then she gives a link to the February 28th lecture that Ben Park gave at the Maxwell Institute. Could you click on that link? Oh, yeah, now? I can't wait. Let's see where this goes. This will be interesting. I want to see that lecture. Oh, oh no, there's nothing there. It's an Air 404. Wah, wah. Yeah, so if we use the very link that is in the interpreter article to go to his presentation, if we go, if we do that, it goes, Error 404, the page you are looking for is no longer available. Sorry, it was available again. at one time. It's not available now. Right. And but when it became unavailable was after he made those tweets. So one might suspect that there could possibly be a connection. There could be a causality between the tweet he made and his being disappeared. What are your thoughts, Bill? Um, knowing the extent of how much he's vanished everywhere on a church-sponsored site, uh, it, becomes, uh, it would become irrational for me not to connect those dots. Yes. And, you know, when... People started talking about this, and I was kind of aware that people were talking about it, but I never want to jump on these kinds of stories too quickly because I'm only too aware. It's computers, it's uh, web pages, things can happen, you know, and it's nobody's fault or it's misunderstood, right? But once again, 823 is when he did those tweets, right? 823.21, it is now over a month later. On September 29th, 21, this has been raging in the news. He's still gone. So at this point, I think it's probably safe to conclude that this was intentional. He is no longer uh, going to be visible on any church-sponsored site going forward. This was no boating accident. No. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, uh, Jana Reese even writes a Salt Lake Tribune article on September 10th, 2021. She waited a couple weeks, right? Was that and a Kennedy reference, by the way? Was that a what? Reference? Was that the reference to the Kennedys? Uh, was it Ted Kennedy or whatever that uh, knocked the Captain girl Whittick? off into the off the boat or something? Uh, no, that was, was a car accident. Mary Jo Kopechny. Oh, that was a car accident. Yeah, what was July the July of nineteen sixty nine? No, that's Jaws. There was a boat one with a bunch of actors, and they lost the lady off the back of the boat. It was. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, Christopher Trust Walken was on the boat. Oh gosh. That's not a movie. That was real life. And it was no, that's what I'm Wood. saying. I'm, okay, just a boat accident. I don't know. People it's, ja it's Jaws. It's Hooper. I'm just joking about the lady disappearing. Okay. <laughs> All right. This is my, that's, it's my fault. It's a dangerous thing when I give a little quip from a, a movie. I'm not um, smart enough to keep up. So No, you are. You are. And you're showing it. You're not only keeping up. You're distancing me. Yeah, no, that's it. Jana Reese, her article in the Salt Lake Tribune. And uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from it uh, because she writes an article about his being disappeared. In 2018, oh, it talks about Park was a summer fellow at the Institute, the Maxwell Institute, researching and writing, researching and writing his excellent book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, blah, blah, blah. The Institute gave him funding and a home for the summer, interviewed him for its podcast and trumpeted his involvement on its homepage. The participation of a Cambridge educated, nationally recognized historian of early America was a feather in the Institute's cap until last week. 
when the news broke that all record of Park's fellowship and involvement with the Maxwell Institute had been systematically erased from its website. And this next line is important because it gives credit to the person, or at least the, um, the screen name of the person who apparently discovered this. On Twitter, the Grand Scuba, S-C-O-O-B-A-H, shared screenshots of what the site had looked like in 2018 when Park was a fellow and what it looks like now. And they all kind of look like, oh, here's Ben Park. And what they look like now is error 404, like we just saw, right? And then she asked some uh, hypothetical questions. Was this because Park objected to a speech two weeks ago by Latter-day Saint Apostle Jeffrey R. Holland, taking to Twitter to point out the ways the talk was harmful to the LGBTQ community and to academic freedom? Hmm. Could be. She goes on. She gives a couple of other possibilities, but I think it's pretty clear that this is what pushed him over the line as far as certain apostles were concerned. Or was it something else? We don't know because no one from the church or the university has yet seen fit to explain to Park why what he did that triggered his erasure. By the way, what was true when she wrote this on September 10th is still true today, September 29th. They have yeah. not talked to him about it. They haven't talked to anybody about it because they're not admitting they did anything at this point. They'd have to admit they did something before they would give a reason for having done it, I expect. Yeah, I showed the picture on the screen there. Oh, That's what? the Wayback Machine. Oh, there he is, Handsome it. Devil. But if you go to the current link, uh, not the Wayback Machine, you get that 404 we showed earlier. Oh, my gosh. This is really, really, well, I'll just tell you, it's, it's troubling to me. It is troubling to me that they would go and do this. Just because someone says he doesn't agree with what a member of the board of directors of the university of BYU said in a talk at BYU. But of course, he also happens to be an apostle. And this is where it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. You nailed it. Was that me or was it Elder Oaks? Yeah, those were very similar. Thank you. Yeah, he has background music. That's how you can tell it's Elder Oaks. <laughs> um, and then she says, the, actions the action feels vaguely Orwellian. Vaguely? Yes, the action feels vaguely Orwellian. Leaning into the 1984 idea that the past is alterable. And she goes on and talks about how it lines up with um, Orwell's 1984 and the memory hole where things get thrown when history has to be uh, rewritten. Okay, so she also says this, and, and I echo her sentiments here. Let me be clear that the Maxwell Institute and any other academic institution or foundation has the right to give funding to any scholar it pleases. It also has the right to distance itself from a scholar. Let me try that, to distance itself from a scholar whose work or public persona it now deems to be outside the organization's mission. Maybe an institution will make a statement about why it is distancing itself or add an explanatory note to a person's faculty page or at the very least explain to the scholar in question what he or she did to trigger discipline. But she says, but skullduggery is not the way to do it. I'm not aware, and this is concluding her, her article, Jenna Reese says, I'm not aware of other scholarly institutions 
that attempt to make the rest of us believe scholars whose work no longer fits their mission had never participated in those institutions in the first place. I've not seen an academic institution simply try to erase a historian from history until yeah. now. Yeah, you know, really, I, I, I was going to ask you that earlier, like, is this is odd, like in an academic institution, really all that he did, all he did was say, hey, on an issue of people who are marginalized that are already vulnerable to violence and to hate speech and to physical threats as well, uh, it probably wouldn't, it was probably reckless to to mention muskets and, and that kind of rhetoric. Um, and And he's right by the way. And here you have this academic institution that wants to be considered a serious academic institution, although Elder Holland is now making room that maybe we won't be so seriously taken in the future. And I think he's on his way to that. Um, but here you have them doing things that match what Fair Mormon did for me, for instance. And uh, it does seem, it does seem wrong. And it does seem, I don't know, so small minded, to be honest. It does. It's very troubling. And like I told you on the phone, I have difficulty myself putting in words and articulating why it is that I find this so troubling. And maybe some of the people making comments will be able to do that for me or when they call in and be able to express it better than I am. But I can definitely tell you, I find this troubling. This has this type of erasure of people from history has a long, long pedigree. It goes back to, um, not just to Joseph Stalin, it goes back to the Romans and even before them to the Egyptians. In fact, a Latin, there's a Latin phrase for this. It's called damnatio memoriae, mm. which interpreted means Bless the you. power of Christ compels you. No, that's a little exorcist humor. <laughs> damnatio memoriae is a modern Latin phrase meaning condemnation of memory indicating mm. that a person is to be excluded from official accounts. There are and have been many routes to damnatio memoriae, including the destruction of depictions, the removal of names from inscriptions and documents, and even large-scale rewritings of history. The term can be applied to other instances of official scrubbing. The practice is seen as long ago as the aftermath of the reign of the Egyptian pharaohs Akhenaten, Akhenaten in the 13th century BC, and Hatshepsut in the 14th century BC. So this goes way, way back. So I guess if the Egyptians did it anciently, then it's okay for the LDS church to do it today. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's something that they could get away with a little bit more easily, but um, not so much today. By the way, a little bit of inside intel, if you'll all get closer to your screens, this was not done by the head of the Maxwell Institute. The head of the Maxwell Institute is Spencer Fluman. Yeah, Spencer Fluman's an okay guy. Yeah, good guy. He never would have done this. No. Never. No. We happen to have inside intel. And when I say inside, I mean inside the Maxwell Institute. That this was a phone call to Spencer Fluman that came from the church hierarchy above Spencer. And he was directed to do this and apparently he did yeah it uh, seems to me that spencer fluman had just a touch less courage than ben park yeah it's really really unfortunate there will come a time in every man and woman's life 
when circumstances combine that forces a choice upon them where they can do what is right or they can do what it is that they are supposed to do, what they are expected to do. And in this case, probably what they were pressured to do. Yeah. And it's at that point that a man or a woman's character shines because they have to make a decision one way or another. And this was apparently the decision that Ben Park made. It was a decision that Spencer Fluman made. But Spencer Fluman is still associated with the Maxwell Institute and still appears on their webpage. Yeah. So some people uh, are nuanced and recognize there are very unhealthy aspects of the church. But when the church tells them to do something, they are a good little member and they get in line and do it. And there are other people who are members of the church who are also nuanced. And when it comes down to doing trauma on human beings, they stand up and do the right thing. Right. Well, Spencer Fluman at least has the Nuremberg defense on his side. <laughs> okay. A little World War II humor. You're going to have to explain that. Well, the Nuremberg defense, the Nuremberg trials after World War II. Gotcha. A lot of the Nazi hierarchy were oh, being... Cause I, yeah, because I, I did what I had to do. Otherwise, I'd what, be... I, what I was ordered to do, yes. Yeah, except this is just a high-demand fundamentalist religion where nobody's life is in danger, and you could put your standards, beliefs, um, responsibility to stop human harm and trauma in front of loyalty to an institution. You might lose your job, and we know of folks who, you know, professors at BYU and other places who um, try to balance that and try to be a healthy voice for students while also being loyal to the institution. Um, this church really does scare you into saying the right things. And by the way, this quote, I think, from last week comes into play. Um, There's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. They hid Ben Park. They did. They they hid him. He, you can't find him. What does that mean? If you can't find somebody, they're hidden. Yeah. Uh, we hide a lot of things away. We hide First Vision accounts. Um, we hide uh, recognition that the Egyptian uh, papyri is not uh, is not the book of Abraham. We hide eighteen eighty six um, revelations to John Taylor about plural marriage going on and lasting forever. We hide, uh, oh man, we hide so much. I, 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 I hid I, the seer stone in the safe, the big paperweight on top of all the other hidden documents that Joseph Fielding Smith had in there. We hit yeah. the seer stone until finally everybody knew about it. So they brought it out for a photo op in the October 2015 Enzyme. Yeah. We hid Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner as a plural wife of Joseph Smith. We hid all the data about still hiding that. I think Annie Alger and, you know, Helen Mark Kim, you know, we, we, we only want to gloss over it, barely touch on it. And that's only the last five years prior to that. We hid the hell out of it. Right. And this whole thing with Ben Park, I think gives added light to an incident, another incident involving the Maxwell Institute from earlier this year. And this involved another scholar who worked for them by the name of Fiona Gibbons. You've heard of her, haven't you, Bill? I, I, that name does ring a bell. Um, uh, yeah, Fiona Gibbons. And I'm just being funny here because, yes, I've interviewed Terrell and Fiona and probably never get another one, but uh, I did interview them both. 
Yeah. So back in March of 2021, she is giving, and probably with her husband, I don't know, uh, but giving a Maxwell Institute fireside, a state fireside. It's in Harlem of all places. I'm sure it was by Zoom, but there's a lot of people who are attending. And in this talk, um, Fiona Gibbons, who, by the way, is a remarkable scholar and speaker and wonderfully articulate in her own right, um, was talking about Heavenly Mother. And she wasn't just talking about Heavenly Mother because you can get away with that. OK, but she was talking about Heavenly Mother in terms of including her in the Godhead, i.e. Heavenly Mother could be the Holy Ghost and therefore she's in the Godhead. She might be number three, but still she's there. Right. And of course, that's pushing things too far because putting a woman in the Godhead, that's not in their job description. The woman is supposed to Heavenly Mother is supposed to be home making cookies. So that when the Godhead comes back from their priesthood meeting, they've got something nice to eat. That's what Heavenly Mother is supposed to be doing. She's not actually in the Godhead. So the Maxwell Institute apparently took action against Fiona Givens as well. They didn't erase her completely. But what they did was they received a complaint from one of the participants, one of the people listening to this fireside. And they decided to uh, put her on the bench for a while so that she's not being uh, going out doing any speaking engagements representing the Maxwell Institute, which represents the church, right? Because it's part of the church now. Um, now, let me just go back to this. Uh, this was something that was odd, but maybe not hugely newsworthy at the time. I don't know that we talked about it at the time. But now that we see what happens with Benjamin Park, this takes on increased importance. Um, so this is from an article. By the way, this is May, May 8th, 2021 in the Salt Lake Tribune. So it took a couple of months before it bubbled to the surface. And Peggy Fletcher Stack, I believe it was who wrote the article. I could be wrong about that, but it's in the Salt Lake Tribune, wrote about it. And um, under a pillar of light, uh, she writes this. In March, Fiona Givens, co-author with her husband, Terrell, was invited to give a fireside address to members in a Latter-day Saint young single adult ward in Harlem. More than 200 people signed on to Givens' Zoom, that's Givens plural, Zoom presentation, according to Delaney Plant, who was among them. Now, Delaney Plant is this person who is apparently the source that passed the story along to the Salt Lake Tribune. Givens, this is uh, Fiona, Givens shared her studies and research into Heavenly Mother, including multiple biblical accounts in which she believes a female deity is depicted as a pillar of light. Plant, that's Delaney Plant, the source, reports in an email. She then made the connection that during the first vision, when Joseph Smith was visited by God the Father and Jesus Christ, he first mentioned seeing a pillar of light. That shows that Heavenly Mother was also present during the first vision. Plant says, Fiona Gibbons concluded. In answer to a question, Gibbons, Fiona, discussed whether the Mother God might be synonymous with the Holy Spirit. In the past, the writer has addressed this possibility. Is she part of the Godhead? Fiona says. Is she part of the Godhead? One assumes she is, Gibbons told the Salt Lake Tribune in 2013. So is she the Holy Spirit? The scriptural record is silent on this and so much else that we fall into the sticky quagmire of speculation. But she's obviously not closing the door on the possibility, right? Then we get this part from the Salt Lake Tribune article from excuse me, May of this year. After her recent remarks, 
several attendees complained. It wasn't just one. Several attendees complained. And now Fiona Givens is no longer employed by BYU's Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship and is turning down invitations to all speaking engagements. Huh. Now, notice the way that the, this was uh, framed. This sentence was very carefully crafted because it doesn't say because they complained. She's no longer working for the Maxwell Institute. They don't put the causality there. They just put one thing happened and then the other thing happened, right? Fiona Givens initially declined to comment on the fireside or its aftermath. So Peggy Fletcher Stack gives her a call. We'd like your comment on the story. She says, no comment. I don't want to talk about it. That's interesting. And though BYU spokeswoman Carrie Jenkins confirmed Fiona Givens' departure, she would not detail reasons why, citing personnel policies. <laughs> oh, it gets deeper and deeper, doesn't it? Especially because once this becomes a big deal, Fiona Givens is going to make her own brief statement on her Facebook page. We'll get to that in a second. Still, this lady, Delaney Plant, the source of the story, says, I find the whole situation quite confusing and upsetting. I feel that BYU is now silencing a very important voice in regards to a doctrinal topic that is not wrong to speak on. Okay. So on Sunday, in the wake of this story's original publication, Givens, Fiona, wrote on Facebook that after almost two years of employment, and actually, let me just go ahead. I went ahead and got it off her Facebook page. It's still there from May 9th, 2021. Fiona Givens wrote on her Facebook page, as I have been asked for details surrounding recent events, I would like simply to share the following. And here's where she says, no, there was no problem with what I talked about. I was not asked by the Maxwell Institute to stop working for them. I was not asked by the Maxwell Institute to stop giving public presentations. Oh, wait, she doesn't say that. <laughs> that's not what you would words. expect her to say if that's really what didn't happen, right? Yeah. But here's what she says. After almost two years of employment, I voluntarily made the decision to leave the Maxwell Institute to focus on my own study, writing, and other personal endeavors. I maintain the highest regard and warmest relations with the Maxwell Institute and its wonderful faculty. I applaud their work and support their continuing mission under the very capable leadership of Spencer Fluman. period, yeah. end of statement. That is the biggest non-statement statement I think I've ever read. It doesn't say, it, it doesn't deny any of the things that were being alleged about why it was that she was suddenly terminated from her employment at the Maxwell Institute. It doesn't deny it. That's the key. She doesn't yeah. deny it. Instead, she just says this uh, kind of uh, empty sort of sounding thing that I voluntarily made the decision. Yeah, I voluntarily made the decision when they told me I had to. If if you were leaving an organization that you were an important at least face of, and it just so happened to coincide with an event where it looked like the entity that you worked for was upset with you, you would go out of your way to explain what had happened so as to keep any bad blood between you and the, the place you left. and. Mm -hmm. And yet here, as you point out, she is very vague, doesn't really want to say much. 
um, and and it, the words are care, uh, carefully chosen, and there's a lot not being said. Uh, and I also I'll throw another thing too, which is this: what she would have been in trouble for would have been teaching false doctrine. Correct? Bringing yes. some messy issue to the surface that they don't want spoken about that is doctrinal, at least in uh, in concept. But what happens, uh, RFM, when the top 15 men say false doctrines, when they say disavowed theories, when they say things that no longer hold to be true, do we ever do anything with them? Do we even stand in front of a pulpit and say, hey, Brother McConkie made a mistake. Brother Kimball screwed up. Brother Young, you know, President Young made, you know, made an error. Uh, do we do any of that? No. No. So in other words, it's not just that the rules are shitty. It's that the rules aren't even carried out fairly across all the people that are participating. Right. You're very, you're right. I think the closest thing to it was taking Mormon doctrine off the shelves of Deseret a few years back. Yeah. Sh- we're we're going to stop publishing it. And we just don't want to talk about it anymore. Right. We're yeah. just not going to sell it anymore. And we'll ignore the fact that Bruce R. McConkie lives on in the Bible dictionary. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those will, I think will be the ones we avoid. Yeah. Those will be the ones we avoid. The They never, ever will throw each other under the bus, but they got no problem throwing Fiona Givens under the bus. And Fiona has no problem playing, being a company man. Right. And I can only imagine, by the way, I am not saying this is what happened because I don't know, but it sure looks like it, especially when you take Benjamin Park in September of 2021 and then look at what happened with Fiona Givens back in March of 2021. It does kind of give you a little bit better perspective on it, I think. Yeah, and I'll respect Fiona's story. Fiona has a right to her version of the events, and I do not like to trample on other people's stories. I will add, though, that there is lots of input from other sources that are not just a couple in number that are saying, like, I know that's what she said, but trust me, something else happened here on the inside. And to just give you an obvious example, okay, let's say that I leave Mormonism live, okay, and I just go off the air and I do it because I got to handle, you know, family stuff that's going on. There's emergency this, emergency that, whatever, right? And I go off the air and all of a sudden this rumor starts circulating, that people had complained about me and you had fired me, right? Yeah. I go on Facebook and I say, look, there's been this rumor that's been circulating that Bill Real fired me. No, he didn't fire me. That's not true. I just yeah. went off to go do this, right? It's yeah. the first thing you say. You deny yeah. the rumor that is wrong if the rumor's wrong. And you give as much information that you need to give, but to not cross any privacy issues, right? In other words, if you went to take care of your sick dad who's in the hospital, maybe you say there's a health issue in the family, but you won't be specific and say it's your, you know, it's your dad. But in this case, she doesn't even want to go that far. She doesn't even want to give this vague, like, hey, no, it, it just feels as though the elephants in the room and we're all kind of avoiding talking about it, which is that the Mormon church is uber controlling to the point where it says you can think what you want, but you sure as hell better watch what you say. And in every instance, if you say the wrong thing, 
Your bishop will talk to you. Your stake president will talk to you. There will be a disciplinary council. You'll be excommunicated. Uh, we're going to make you disappear from uh, apologetic entities that you that you volunteered for. We're going to make you disappear from uh, school academic institutions that are run by the church. And the church itself has a history of hiding things and hiding people in its stories and narratives, uh, historical context that is crucial to you and I knowing the full story and being able to make an informed decision about whether we really want to invest our time, energy, resources to the building up of the kingdom of God, paying tithing to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the church doesn't want you to have all the information. It tells you its narrative and then tells you everybody else is lying and not to be trusted when it's the least accurate place to go for Mormon history. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good summation. Bill, you missed your calling as a lawyer. I've said that before. Yeah. You're a heck of a pawn shop owner. Let me tell you that. <laughs> yeah, or you. Owner, manager, excuse me. Pawn broker. Yeah, managing the store. Okay. Um, let me just finish this out here by telling you my own personal story. You got to tell your story with Fair Mormon. Please. Let me tell you my story on a local level in the ward here. Not as bad as Ben Park. Not as bad as uh, Fiona Givens appears to be. And I don't think even as bad as you. But here's the deal. I was the Sunday school teacher, the gospel doctrine teacher, right? From 2006 to 2010, it was four years. I did all four years. I went through the entire rotation of all the standard works. I got to say everything I wanted to say. People either loved me or they hated me or they were just the people who were there because they have to be and they don't have any interest anyway. So what ended up happening is a number of people, and I know their names and you know who you are, uh, complained about me to the bishop, right? And so there was a lot of controversy that was going on, which I found out because I knew people who were also present when these issues are being raised in the priesthood executive committee meetings, right? And they're reporting back to me and how they would stand up for me. And that's the only reason I got to stay in that position as long as I did. Anyway, at the end of 2010, uh, I get retired. And because it was very important to the bishop to put me in a calling where I was desperately needed, where my skills were needed, and that was as the high priest group secretary. Mm. So that's where I was. I was nice and put off way off to the side where I wouldn't be a problem to anybody. And, um, but that's okay. That's okay. And I tried to be as good a secretary as I possibly could. And I think I did a relatively good job. But anyway, what happened then is that the person who was called to be the gospel doctrine teacher right after me in the middle of 2010 was a good friend of mine named Daryl. And you know his last name. You've actually met him, haven't you, Bill? Yeah, and yeah. I was just going to tell you that. I was going to bring that up, which is uh, the this mutual acquaintance of ours. He lives down here in southern Utah. He comes in to see me about once every three or four months. And uh, he was a, a friend of yours back in your ward, and he attended your gospel doctrine class. And he raves, by the way. And I... I might go back to church if I could hear gospel doctrine at the hands of Radio Free Mormon, um, because I find that as much Mormon history as I think I know, and I think I know quite a bit, you impress me with how much more you've got stored inside your head. This gentleman comes in, older gentleman, and he raves up and down about how good you are as a teacher. And he notes that you taught all four years. And then he had this little sad look on his face and he starts to tell me about how you were essentially removed from that position. And it was obvious to the ward, at least to him within the ward, that it had happened intentionally to kind of keep you from saying the things you were saying, which were starting to disturb people. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he takes over. And by the way, you see, I was actually his home teacher. And I put it in quotes only mm -hmm. because 
I was a good friend of his and I went and saw him and his wonderful wife, by the way. And I, I won't get off on a sidetrack, but she's absolutely wonderful. And I can't say enough good about her too. And Daryl, but Daryl became the new gospel doctrine teacher. And he was of a similar mind to me. He always wanted to try and ask questions that would get people to think, to go beyond the standard uh, leading go nowhere questions that are written at the back of the manual that the teacher's and they supposed are, to ask. They are go nowhere questions. They all end with the same four answers of reading your scriptures and saying your prayers and magnifying your calling and get your food storage together. And every one of the questions ends that way. Yeah, they're, they're really bad questions. They are. But, it's really but bad he, curriculum. Yes, but he would always try and get people to think. Okay, and that's a bad that's a bad thing in a in a Mormon Sunday school class. You don't want people to think. No. Yeah, flatlining the the brain wave flatlining is really what you're aiming for. Yes. Uh, so anyway, but he would do that, and he was frequently, I would say, or often out of town on weekends, whether it's business or family or whatever. And so he had been teaching for a couple of weeks, and I'm and I'm grateful to sit there and listen to him because I enjoyed his presentations too. And um, he's gone a weekend. He gives me a call. Hey, Radio Free Mormon, could you substitute for me? Yeah, sure, sure. So I go and teach the class. I remember getting up in front of the class. It was in the chapel, walk up to the front, right? I didn't go up behind the, um, on the podium. I stood down there, you know, right in front of the, the first row. But, um, and I opened it up by walking up there and said, J just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. Another Jaws reference, but Thank be you. that as it may, a few people chuckled. Um, and so I taught my class, right? And then time goes on. And he's there most of the time. And then he's not there. And somebody else is teaching. Not the Radio Free Mormon. And the person who's teaching, we would often talk about teachers and their different qualities and how it's important to have a good teacher, blah, blah, blah. Not someone who just reads from the manual, etc. And a lot of these people were just reading from the manual. And I'm thinking, why is he not asking me? But then immediately I think, well, you know, it's Daryl's class for crying out loud. It's not your class. It's his class. And he can have whoever he wants to substitute. Upbraiding myself for actually even having the thought. Yeah. And so this goes on for well, actually a few years, I think. Let's just say two years, okay? And um, he doesn't ask me to teach anymore after that first time when he was gone. Shortly after I was released. And he has a heart operation. I don't think he had a heart attack. I think he had to have an operation in advance of that. And I went down to the hospital where he was rehabilitating. He was there for a number of days. And I'm his home teacher. And it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. So I drive down. It's about half an hour south of here. And I go up on whatever floor it was. And I'm visiting with him. And I'm talking with him. Saying, Daryl, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm about ready to go. I've been there for maybe half an hour, et cetera. And he says, Radio Free Mormon, um, I feel like I should tell you something. And I said, what? And because it sounded serious. And he says, well, you may have noticed that I haven't been asking you to substitute in my gospel doctrine class for the last couple of years. And I said, well, yeah, I noticed. But, you know, it's your class, right? It's, it, I don't hold it against you. It's no big deal. And he says, well, yeah, I wanted to tell you why that was. Okay, Daryl, why? He says, well, shortly after you were released, the Ward Sunday School president passed around a list to all the teachers, including me in the ward. And this list had a number of names on it. And the names on it 
were the names of people that were approved to be called to be asked to substitute in your class if you couldn't be there on a given Sunday. And your name's not on it. <laughs> and I thought, are you kidding me? Really? Well, this is interesting because I've only been a member of the church for 40 years as of this point, or 35, whatever, long enough to know what every Mormon knows. And that is, is that if you have a calling and it involves teaching or anything else and you can't make it, you are calling anybody and everybody on the phone. You're stopping strangers on the street and asking them if they will substitute for you, right? Mm. You, if anybody, Katie, bar the door. There are no qualifications that are necessary for this. You just need to, to substitute for me. Yeah. But what the Sunday school president did was in our ward, uh, instead of doing a list of people that you can't call to teach, they did a list of people that you can call and you have to um, choose it from this list of approved people. And I was kind of steamed about that for a while because I know the, the ward uh, Sunday school president, I'd known him for years and years and years. And I thought, really, really, you're going to do this to me. And I just fumed about it for a number of weeks. I didn't confront him. I didn't mm -hmm. confront him. I just fumed about it. But, you know, going to church, he's out there. This is the, the Sunday school president. He's out there in front of the, the chapel handing out bulletins one day. And I just kind of go by him. And he says, hey, Radio Free Mormon, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah. He says, you seem to be kind of upset with me in the last few weeks. <laughs> so I guess I wasn't hiding it very well. And I said, well, yeah, I am. And he says, why? And I said, well, because you sent around a list of people uh, that could teach and you made it so I can't teach anymore, even as a substitute in the ward anywhere. And he says to me, oh, oh, well, I just want you to know that came from the bishop. Mm. It wasn't from him, right? It wasn't. You can strike it up to a, a a shitty human behavior when it's one guy who's not at the top who does some shitty thing. But when it's the bishop who probably gets together with either the Sunday school presidency, which is unlikely, but probably happens in a ward council with 10 or 12 people in the room. And you're saying, here's how we want this to go. Don't let this person do that here. And, and it's that kind of unhealthiness that is all throughout Mormonism. I mean, go back and look at the John W. Taylor case we talked about last week. These guys can't help but run over other people when that person isn't saying the company slogan. Right. So that was my little experience. I never confronted the bishop. I figured I know enough about it. I don't need to confront him about it. I know the lay of the land. I see how they're playing the game. And this was the story of how I got blacklisted in the star chamber. Yeah. So in conclusion, in conclusion, all of this goes back to Mormonism Live, episode number 11. You may remember that one, Bill. It was called The Rules of the Game. The Rules of the Game. I do remember the rules of the game. And this was from, uh, we broadcast that on February 18th of this year. It's long before what happened with Benjamin Parker, even before what happened with Fiona Givens. So this is what I said then. This is what I'll conclude with now. Rule number one, this is from the point of view of the church leaders, by the way. This is the rules of the game that they play with us. Rule number one, we are going to hide stuff from you. Rule number two, we are going to try to keep you from finding the stuff we are hiding from you. Rule number three, we are going to lie about hiding stuff from you. I.e., we're going to say we're not hiding stuff from you, right? <laughs> I think you've already played a, a soundbite to that effect from Elder yeah. Ballard. Yeah. 
Rule number four, you can't blame us for hiding stuff from you. <clears throat> and rule number five, if you talk about the stuff we are hiding from you, we will hide you. Yeah. And that's what happened to you with Fair Mormon. It's what happened to uh, me and my ward. It's what happened to Benjamin Park with the Maxwell Institute. And it sure seems like something very similar to that happened with Fiona Givens with the Maxwell Institute as well. Once you understand the five rules of the game that the church plays by, everything else falls into place. Yeah, you you missed it as you were going through all that super interesting stuff. And you're wow. right, those five rules absolutely apply. Our good friend Jared was in the text thread with folks trying to argue that, you know, prophets are fallible, but they are prophets. So the the people participating in the chat are asking him which prophecy these men have given. He said, watch conference this weekend. And they said, oh, that's great. Like, that's that's great to kick the can down the street. But what did they do last April? And they were asking other good logical questions, too, which I love. And uh, finally, Jared responded that his fingers were tired. He couldn't type anymore. So oh yeah, uh, he just, of course, once you're walked into a corner, I, I know the trick, right? You and I have seen it all over. When, when you walk a defender of the faith to the logical end of their questioning, they're now too busy, don't have enough time, and fingers away they must go. Absolutely. So, yep. This sounds like what Jared is arguing is a version of if it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a marmoset <laughs> or a duckbill platypus or something, right? Right. In other words, <laughs> they're fallible, but they're prophets. Well, yeah. wait a second. You're saying that they're fallible, but they're prophets. Okay. So what good is having a prophet? I'm fallible, but I don't claim to be a prophet. Yeah. And it's not just that they're fallible, which means they make mistakes. I, I'm still wondering what is the revealed truth they've given us in the last, say, 30 years. Logo. Look, look, they, we did get a new logo. Oh, um, loves the logos. Logo. <laughs> Rule number five, if you talk about the stuff we are hiding from you, we will hide you. And you named that rule. And as it shows up, it happens over and over and over again in Mormonism. Oh, my a prophet, goodness. A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and among his own countrymen. Yeah. I'm the prophet, Jared. Yeah. I said this back in February. It has come to pass. Yea, verily. Yeah. You also told them they should get rid of that 2015 policy, and they did. I did uh, do that. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I think I made a bunch of predictions, uh, and, and those came true, most of them. Um, I, I would find that you and I probably have a much closer uh, pulse of where the thing is going to have to go than those top 15 men in the room trying to figure out what they should do next. I think that we are batting at least 400, and that's pretty darn good. That's good enough for the Hall of Fame in baseball. Absolutely. Ted Williams. There you go, my friend. And, yeah, he's got his frozen head now, right? So maybe someday we'll see Ted Williams again. <laughs> so 435, are you done? I don't, no pressure. That's it. That is the show for tonight, everybody. But stay tuned for more fun and merriment as people call in live. Yeah, we're ready for your calls, uh, folks. I'm hoping we had a little bit of we were trying to test out a new process, hoping that the callers could hear RFM. But as we tested it prior to the show beginning, we had the same problem. Um, I've reached out to StreamYard and um, Roadie or Rode, which is the Rodecaster Pro, which is the audio device I use. And they said it had to be done through a separate phone call. 
And so we tried to do that and uh, it didn't work. So, um, but we've got our first caller tonight, I believe. Uh, what's your name, caller? Hey, this is SW. SW? Bill, Bill, don't we get to announce the phone number? That's my favorite part of the show. <laughs> give, me, give me one th- second, SW. RFM's favorite part of the show is coming up. So one moment. Uh, it is 435-200-3478 or 435-200-FIST. And by the way, uh, I'm wearing my Immortal Iron Fist t-shirt just to help you remember the phone number. I love it. Um, again, we didn't go with dirt. It wasn't as popular among our fans, so we stuck with fist. Uh, SW, you are on Mormonism Live. We just talked about the church's behavior of hiding people through its own self as well as its uh, uh, sub-entities that are deeply connected to it, whether they claim so or not. Uh, any thoughts from you, my friend? Yeah. Um, when an RFM was saying earlier in the show that uh, – he was having a hard time putting his finger on what exactly was so disturbing about this, this story with Ben Park. Uh, it just occurred to me, I was thinking of, um, I'm going to stumble over what the term is. RFM would know in theater, like what you call like the fourth wall or the third wall or whatever that is. Or like, you know, like the, the acting is going on on the stage and the actors on the stage are not supposed to be aware of the audience. Right. But when the actor uh, if an actor were to turn and like address the audience, they've now like broken. Somebody knows what I'm trying to say, and I'm yeah, like, broken the fourth wall. You've kind of broken that barrier that's supposed to be there. Yeah, the fourth wall. Kind of like that. But yeah, right. Okay, so you know, you know what I'm talking about. But. So like, when you, when you, when your employment, your job is with the church, there's sort of like these two worlds coming together, where you have the spiritual, the testimony based, you know, uh, led by the priesthood side of things. But then you also have like a W-2, the church as an institution is your employer. And um, there's just something about the mingling of those things that just feels so icky, you know, and it reminds me of that concept that like, you know, these two things are supposed to stay separate. And when you blend them together, it just, it makes everybody feel weird, you know, and the a separate issue, I'm taking up too much time, but if, if you're an employee at BYU and, or the church, I don't know about this. Certainly other people do, but if your membership status is related to your employment, um, is there a where the employer can say, are you paying your tithing? And if not, then your job is like in jeopardy. Cause that seems like extortion, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if that's how it actually works. I would love for somebody to explain that. But, Thank um, you. Anyway. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate the call and great point, by the way. Great. The, the fourth wall. We'll talk about that. Thank you. He's right. Like the moment you let the crowd know, the audience know that something isn't right back here and and you're kind of getting kind of the inside story, um, the Mormonism isn't too happy, is it? No, no. And I think that what he's talking about with the, the tithing is an interesting idea. I think the way it's probably cloaked is you have to have a temple recommend to work in certain positions for the church. Part of that temple recommend is, of course, being a full tithe payer. And that's probably how they end up doing it. Good points, though. All right. We are on to the second caller. It is Lila. You're on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon. Lila! And and Bill Real. What's on your mind tonight, my friend? Hi. Um, Great show tonight. Um, I love the topic. 
I think it's, uh, it's, it's pretty pathetic what's going on. And I was thinking especially about Fiona Givens being a woman. It seems that not only is she being punished uh, for, for speaking out as a woman, but she's speaking out about a woman who is our mother in heaven, as if that is a, a, a topic that is not to be spoken of, that is taboo. We're not allowed to speak of our own mother, um, but we can pray to our father. We, we can't pray to our mother. How, I, I just don't understand this. What, what, is this. what is this saying about the future of women uh, eternally that we pop all these children out, allegedly, but we're not allowed to speak to them. They're not allowed to speak to us, and we're not even to be known. You know, just, yeah. No, I, it's a horrible, it, it, it just makes me so angry yeah. what they've done to her. Amen to that. Um, we're going to hang up with you. I want We'll definitely respond to that, okay? Okay. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, in the L- oh, go, go, ahead. No, go ahead. No, you I was going to say, in the LDS church, in some ways, Heavenly Mother is the crazy old lady that, that we got locked away in the attic. She's there. We, we refer to her every now and again, but she can't come out because who knows what she'll do. I was thinking about this the other day and thinking exactly this about, yeah, we don't get to communicate with Heavenly Mother. She doesn't get to communicate with us for crying out loud when I was on my mission in Japan. I got to call my mom twice a year and talk with her. And that's more than Heavenly Mother gets in my whole lifetime, at least if we're following the dictates of the leadership of the church that you can't pray to her. And my mom isn't even a member of the church. Yeah, I... I will only add, it is weird, right? They hide Fiona Givens for talking about the woman that they're hiding in their theology. It, it it just seems like this strange thing that LDS leaders get a free pass no matter what they say that's not true or disavowed later, and uh, lay members of the church. Remember, remember all these times when you and I were younger in the church and there's no calling above another, whether you're the bishop or a primary president, like those callings are all equal and they come from God and they just have certain responsibilities. The reality is if you're in the top 15, you get a lot of perk benefits, including you get to say bullshit and it gets to survive until your death. And only after you die and all the other top 15 who agreed with you die, then does the church uh, disavow what you said in the first place. Meanwhile, if it's anybody else in this church, including 70s, by the way, uh, if they say the wrong thing, like ponderize or something, they're obviously trumped out there to make an apology. Uh, anybody else in the church is a second-class citizen to these top 15 men and their families. I will tell uh, you that the, the GA ahead. who did the ponderize thing a number of years back, no, he never had to do an apology. In fact, he was, he's a GA, he's a 70, right? I can't even remember his name. Uh, we'll call him Elder Ponderize. And so he gives that talk about Ponderize, right? And then all of a sudden there's a line of Ponderizing merchandise that shows up on a website, the Ponderize this Within website. Within minutes. Within yeah. minutes. It's just amazing. But he was actually asked to speak again at the very next general conference, if memory serves. That's how yeah. bad they whacked his pee-pee. Then, then I, let me take that back then. That guy still gets to be in the good old boys club, doesn't he? Yes, yes, because he was already in it. He was already in it when he did the ponderizing. Yeah. Okay. Once you understand that the entity considers itself more important than human life, human trauma, uh, and human well-being, then you can start to put the pieces together. Yeah. And I really like the point that you and Lila made about 
this aspect of Heavenly Mother where we're, we're keeping that quiet, we're keeping that vanished, that's disappeared. And a woman starts talking about it, so she gets disappeared. She gets disappeared. It's perfect. Absolutely yeah. perfect. It's just the it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder how uh, Terrell feels about this. I've got to tell you, I wonder how Terrell feels about this. Yeah. Because he's still I, working for the Maxwell Institute, right? Yeah, but you and I know that Terrell's a little different than uh, Brother Park. Well, he is. I, I haven't looked at his Twitter page, but I'm guessing there's nothing similar up there. Not a thing. No. Nope. Uh, our, I think it's our third caller at this point. It is uh, Suzette. You are on the line, uh, Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What's on your mind tonight, uh, Suzette? Hey. Hey, guys. Love the show as usual. And uh, I wanted to comment about Bill, I mean, sorry, uh, RFM's story about, you know, being blacklisted from the Sunday school list and how it trickled down from the bishop to the Sunday school president. And we know that happens all the time. It certainly happened to me. I was heavily involved with the ordained women movement in 2013 and 14. I was called in many times, one time over women's blessings. I was upset with my bishop and kind of hung his head. And he said, you know, the state president told me I had to do this. And I called bullshit on him. And I said, you did not stand up for me. You do not have my back. You and I have had this conversation many times. Do not give me this crap about the state president. You should have stood up for me. And I kind of had that conversation with him. And several months later, he came to me and he apologized. And he goes, you were right. I should have stood up for you. And I think I, my comment is, I think we could do better at calling out the lower leaders. Like he could have called out his Sunday school president and said, hey, you could have stood up for me. You know, instead of just falling in line, I think we can push back and say you're complicit in this because you're just following an order that you're you know is not right so just want to put that out there and see what you think about that thank you thank you suzette we'll hang up we'll respond yep. the, the the problem rfm is this is in our theology this is um this this idea that you do what your leader says even if he's wrong with a with a wink in my eye he shall not lead the church astray uh, and you do what he says and even if he is wrong you'll be blessed for it we teach our members early on that loyalty above all else to the institution oh you're on mute sorry my friend yeah oh i was also going to say um uh john I'm sorry, Laninga, Laninga has made the comment that the Ponderized talk was Elder Durant. So thank you for uh, correcting that record on that. I think that Suzette uh, makes a really good point, and maybe I should have said more. Uh, I can definitely tell you that the Sunday school president knew that I was very angry about it. He definitely got that message at least. And, you know, as far as women's blessings, I would think that maybe the big selling point on that would be, hey, look, well, we can't do any worse than the priesthood giving blessings. <laughs> okay. Um, no, it couldn't be any worse. I mean, one of these days we'll do an episode on the health data of Utah compared to other states and make an episode out of it talking about priesthood power. Um, I, I, we can end the calls there. I think we took four of them. Uh, any thoughts from you kind of concluding wrapping up our conversation tonight? Uh, no, but I'll tell you, there were three calls. There was SW, Lila, and Suzette. Okay, perfect. Perfect, perfect. Um, three of them, good. I, I love that. Um, 
I guess the only thing I would add, if you're not adding anything else, would be uh, our one of our biggest listeners is Jared, who's a, a faithful believer in the in the thread, and you see his comments sometimes, listeners. And for those who are listening to the audio, you're you're missing a ton of fun that's going on in the in the live video and, and even the video after just watching the chat as it takes place uh, with its appropriate times as comments enter in. But Jared was making a point about really his defining thing is that he's had spiritual experiences. He knows Mormonism is true. And uh, I just wanted to tease the audience and let Jared know that he's going to want to tune in next week when we discuss at length uh, spiritual experiences and what they can tell us and what they can't tell us and maybe how a rational mind would look at them uh, next week on Mormonism Live. Uh, RFM, thanks so much for tonight's episode. You, as always, uh, put so much research into these things. I would encourage folks, if you want to give RFM a, uh, a figurative thank you, uh, send a donation to mormonismlive.org, hit the donate button. RFM does get a portion of that to reimburse him essentially for his time and energy that he spends putting these, uh, these episodes together. And uh, I know it means a lot to you and me to be able to get to the point where uh, years and years of doing this for nothing uh, to get to the point where we can kind of put some time into this and feel good about the time we're away from our family or uh, doing that. We could be doing other things. Yeah. My family appreciates the time I'm away. <laughs> they, they love it. Send him out there to do more things. Uh, good. Uh, anything else from you, my friend? Great episode. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. I always feel a little bit sad coming to the end of the program because I enjoy it so much, but I know that there's always next week to look forward to. Yeah. Don't forget to doubt your doubts and Mormonism live better than touching your own little factory.